0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts:
1: Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode two hundred and seventeen, recorded for June twenty eighth, twenty twenty three. The Cloud Pod whispers its secrets to Azure Open AI. Good evening, Matthew and Jonathan. How's it going? Hey, Justin. Welcome back. Thank you. Appreciate it. I, uh, <clears throat> you guys, did an okay job while I was gone. And I only say that because I missed last week. <laughs> I was too busy. Uh, but yeah, you guys had some struggles with the, re- the recording uh, schedule.
2: Turns out getting four people's schedules, or three people in this case, is schedules all aligned. Doesn't always work very well.
1: Yeah, just think about that when you guys want to you know, do a coup to kick me out of the podcast. But
2: you have to do all that yourselves. and
1: <laughs> You value me more after this. That's all that's I have to think about. It. It's job security i mean
2: reading it reading the each line also you know each headline is also pretty difficult so yeah
1: you, you get you're kind of good at it over time where you just you know it kind of flows but yeah when you first start doing it it's very much reading off the bullets uh and then uh, you, you get better over, with more practice so maybe we should make you read more of them
2: matthew no i'm good okay <laughs> hard no
1: <laughs> hard pass uh, all right. Well, that's uh great. I had a great time. I was glad to uh, get away and not worry about the podcast for two weeks, uh, and uh, come back and uh, you know be back in the saddle now. So back to normal schedule. All right. First up, Vault, uh, Hashicorp Vault. In that matter, one one four is bringing a couple of new features that I thought was good to highlight. Uh, we don't typically talk about their releases, but they finally, finally have released Acme for PKI which allows you to uh, use Vault to manage your TLS certificates using the ACME protocol. For those of you who uh, don't know what ACME is, if you've ever seen Let's Encrypt and all the magic that happens behind the scene, that's all ACME. (laughs) The email process, the DNS validation system, that's all based on ACME uh, being able to automatically create certificates on the fly, which is something you will probably be doing a lot of in your infrastructure if you're doing TLS uh, 1.2 certification through your system, PCI, or any of the other major things. A couple other uh, little things in this release. Uh, AWS roles are now supported as part of Vault. Uh, Vault will now manage those roles, making it easier to grant access to your apps. Uh, apparently, it has improved its performance, so you can deliver those Vault secrets faster than ever to the hacker. And there's many, many bug fixes, of course, as well. Uh, they consider this a significant release, the number of features. And uh, if you're using Vault, time to upgrade.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. the The back uh, implementation is really nice. There's a bunch of tools out there. Um, Certbot's one of them that I've used with Let's Encrypt. It's super nice to have a off-the-shelf tool now instead sort of kind of. I, I'm still going to call it hacking something together because although you know, console template works with Vault, um, I don't think it's a particularly nice implementation. And so, using something like Certbot's going to be really nice.
2: I'm just saying you just told me my setup that I built for Acme and Vault like four years ago was not very good and hacked together because we pretty much did what you just said, but it <laughs> worked.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've been working with console template and Vault recently, and just, it just doesn't seem right, the the way the integration works. It's just it's so ugly.
1: It does, it does feel like a little bit of a bolt-on uh, from what I've seen in,
2: in past experiences with it. So I, I feel your pain. Yeah, having it be native is definitely key. Indeed.
1: Well, uh, moving on to AWS features this week, uh, a couple of weird ones actually. <laughs> so first up, for all your UI builders out there who listen to the podcast, which is probably none of you, uh, if you're using AWS Amplify and you have a UI builder uh, Figma capability uh, where your UI UX team builds all your UIs there, you now have a plugin that makes Amplify work natively with Figma. This will make it easier to empower your design and development teams to seamlessly collaborate with the Figma file. This plugin with Amplify UI Kit allows you to easily theme your components, upgrade to the new UI Kit versions, and generate and preview React code from your designs directly in Figma itself. I go from design to code in seconds and I have that native integration. I went in and set this up today because I had never actually used Figma, although I heard lots about it. So I signed up for my free account. I signed in for the plugin for Amplify, and then I remembered I don't know how to use Amplify. So it didn't go so well for me, but uh, I'm going to keep tackling it because one thing I'm not very good at is front-end development, and anything that makes me better as a front-end developer would be a
0: plus. Yeah, I was going to say the extent of my uh, user interface is is usually just a REST interface and telling people to use Curl or something. But yeah, Figma looks really nice. It's great for prototyping.
1: Yeah. I've used some other prototyping uh, solutions in the past that I liked as well, but this one has a nice collaboration layer, which I hadn't seen before, so that's kind of cool. And then even it has integration to Slack and to Teams, so as you're working in a team situation, and you go and move a box, it'll notify you that Jonathan just moved the box. And time to update your React code. So it's kind of neat.
0: That's nice. Yeah, I think that the last time I really did any any serious uh, UI work was probably like Visual Basic <laughs> about 1999. <Yeah>. So <laughs> that's,
1: that's <laughs> probably about where I did it too. <laughs> you know, it was like I don't like this front end thing. I, I learned HTML. I loved HTML. Then CSS hit, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, this is not good." Then it got it just got worse from there. JavaScript came, and I was realized very quickly that uh, beyond blink tags,
2: I was not a good HTML developer. <laughs> so. Plus, the Microsoft Front Page really
0: always did well. Oh, Front Page! <laughs> I remember Front Page. And he, yeah, t- how to turn the Hello World page into you know a 300k document full of junk.
1: I was so I remember doing that with Word. You know, you'd save uh, the Word document as HTML, and it'd be like a mag, mm-hmm. and you like, "Why? This makes no sense." And then I, I remember FrontPage, and then I did Dreamweaver as well when I was forced oh, to do web things. So uh, I never really got into Cold Fusion, though. That's the one that I, I sort of missed that moment uh, for some reason. I don't fully really know. I think maybe because again, it veered into JavaScript territory, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm not doing that," and just kept
0: working back end. It's a shame Ryan's not here actually, because Yahoo were great pioneers of building UIs with JavaScript. They were. Uh,
1: he's unfortunately sick though, so he's not here to cough on us as we record the podcast. <laughs> so let him let him mend uh, without his croaky voice. On Friday, he uh, I was on a call with him, and he tired talking, and I I visibly cringed every time he spoke. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Well, I mean, this next feature is definitely a Ryan special. So the AWS Transfer Family now delivers logs in a structured JSON format across all resources, including servers, connectors, and workflows for all protocols, including SFTP, FTPS, FTP, and AS2. New format allows you to easily parse and query your logs using CloudWatch Log Insights. Jogme discovers JSON-formatted fields. You also benefit from improved monitoring with support for CloudWatch Contributor Insights, which requires a structured blog format to track top users, total number of YouTube users, and their ongoing usage. Uh, in addition to this, uh, apparently the AS2 Cloud Certification Seal of Approval was granted by the Drummond Group. If you know anything about AS2 or Drummond Group, you now care about that, and I'm sure you are just. Static. ecstatic about that now you did was transfer family uh i'd just like to mention that little little tidbit here too is another announcement a full blog post on that one by the way about uh their drummond group certification so something
2: important i guess for
0: somebody i have never heard of drummond group certification most likely in the government
2: mm. i uh i read this headline i looked at it and i went wow i've set up transfer family at least two or three times set up all the logs and never have actually looked at them to know what that it was not in JSON format I'm kind of curious what it was
1: I mean it's kind of one of those services that you you just kind of just kind of set it and it works <laughs> it's probably just yeah. it's probably just clean log files you know just every entry is a log file a like connection from something transfer from something probably a very basic text file uh, if it was really anything before
0: this at least you don't have to use a SMTP service to copy off logs to somewhere else now <laughs>
1: That is nice. I appreciate that. Uh, For those of you who don't know what AppSync is, I have a feature for you this week, and that is an abstraction for AppSync. (laughs) Uh, You can now uh, use the AWS Serverless application model with the new AWS Serverless GraphQL API resource abstraction, making AWS AppSync a managed service that makes it easier to build scalable APIs that connect applications to both. And now you don't need to know what any other thing means and just make it work with APIs. So you're welcome. If you don't know what those are, you now have abstractions. Extracted away.
2: So they added it to CloudFormation and to SAM?
1: Apparently, that's what they did. And wrote a blog post about it. So thanks, Amazon. We really appreciate that. <clears throat> Amazon, of course, is in the midst of many uh, existential crises right now between you know, unionization, antitrust, et cetera. Uh, but you know, they want you to know that they really do care about generative AI as well the middle of all these things. And to prove it, they're going to commit to you $100 million in investment. The new program they're launching will help customers successfully build and deploy generative AI solutions. This will help customers successfully envision, design, and launch new generative AI products, services, and processes. I'd like to point out that they have 25 years of deep investment in developing AI technologies for customers, and it's just one of part of AWS's overall generative AI strategy to bring the technology to customers and partners around the world. There's a quote here from Matt Garman, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing and Global Services at AWS. Amazon has more than 25 years of AI experience, and more than 100,000 customers have used AWS AI and ML services to address some of the biggest opportunities and challenges. Now, customers around the globe are hungry for guidance on how to get started quickly and securely with generative AI. Generative AI Innovation Center is part of our goal to help organizations leverage AI by providing flexible and cost-effective generative AI services for the enterprise, alongside our team of generative AI experts to take advantage of all this new technology has to offer. Together with our global community partners, we're working with a business leaders across every industry to help them maximize the impact of generative AI in their organizations, creating value for their customers, employees, and the bottom line.
0: I, I saw Adam Slipsky say that uh, we're only three steps into a 10K race. And of course, he wouldn't say that, um, because what else has he got? There?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, three steps is probably generous. I mean, yes, they had a lot of AI and ML features, but they didn't have anything as revolutionary as ChatGPT, so... Uh, generative AI is where all the hotness is right now, and they are definitely lagging behind just a little bit.
2: What's Alexa considered? Is it? It's a it's a bot. It, yeah. It's is a, it just a bot? that at that point, is it considered you know versus any level of
1: AI? I mean, it does have some AI. Has to interpret what you're saying and has to be able to ta- you know tie into it. But anyone who's ever written an Alexa app. Knows how limited its ability to recognize things is, and it can't it doesn't tie that into an LLM model where it you know it can go off into its own own heavy duty devices. It does require some some structure for certain things in the bot in the apps, but maybe that'll be something that can change in the future where you don't have to be quite as verbose in your app definitions.
0: Yeah, Lex is a pretty good service, but but it is obviously very limited in scope. So it's I mean that's a natural language processor for for apps certainly doesn't have the, the knowledge that, that open AI does in it, but it, it was never designed to. Um, I mean, I, I think it, it is very early on. I, I will say, you know, three steps into a 10k race, maybe, uh, an, an understatement, uh, because they kind of, I kind of feel like they dropped the ball a little bit. Um, but at the same time, turning, taking something like Jack GPT and turning it into a, into a product that you can sell, it's, going to be very difficult because I mean it's just got so much data on so many things. Applying the guardrails you need to provide, you know, a limited set of functionality for an application is going to be super hard. And so I mean maybe maybe we'll have to meet in the middle somewhere. But I, I think you know things are going to change very quickly, and within the next six to twelve months, there'll be you know the, the even better next version of something like uh, GPT, probably from Google, like the next evolution of that type of technology. And I think chat gpt won't be the leader for a long time
2: yeah i mean integrating into products is really all about the guardrails i feel like and making it give the customers or you know a valid response and something that's actually meaningful because i played with it a few times and you know with you know in tandem like with work related things and it's can give you very weird answers. You're like, wait a second. We don't want to tell our customers that. That went horribly.
0: Yeah, the hallucination problem definitely needs to go. Especially if you want to actually have it be the interface to people and for your business. Uh, yeah, it's more work needs to be done. I think. I think Microsoft are probably a little early taking this to market, but they they need to to get to you know to get the money back. Open AI needed to to get a revenue stream going. It kind of makes sense. But yeah, it's going kind to, of, there will be some iterations to actually turn it into a product that we can sensibly integrate with our own applications, I think. Yeah.
1: I mean, they definitely needed that feedback and, and they're able to get a lot of buzz by being first adopters to market on it. So they, there's a good move on their part. You know, I, we use Bard quite a bit now in the show notes when I, I can't be bothered to read an article <laughs> that I don't want to read, uh, but it'll do a nice job summarizing it. But, you know, I can see the more those things get embedded into office and into workspaces and the things that we use on a day-to-day basis, the more and more power those things will have for us. Um, I still think chat GPT is a bit of a hobby, but um, it's coming along quite nicely. All right. Well, While I was on vacation, uh, Google shocked the world for anybody who knew nothing about Google. For those of us who've watched Google for a long time, we're not really that surprised. Uh, Apparently, Google Domains, the registrar service from Google, is shutting down. Uh, and instead of just shutting it off and turning it off like they do all the other Google services, they've actually sold the entire business and assets to Squarespace of all people. Uh, they've entered into definitive asset purchase agreement with Google, whereby Squarespace will acquire the assets associated with Google Domains business. This includes approximately 10 million domains hosted on Google Domains, spread across millions of customers. I mean, if you can't make money on 10 million domains, I don't know what you're doing wrong. Google. Uh, Google launched registrar business in 2014 as a bit of a proponent of HTTPS and top-level domains. And the service just exited beta in 2022. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Uh, can't wait till they sell Google cloud to a third party, uh, in a definitive agreement. Uh, can't wait for that day to happen. But, uh, yeah, if you're using Google domains, you can no longer use Google domains in the future. It'll all integrate directly into Squarespace, uh, who is a very prominent podcast sponsor, but not a pon- sponsor of this show. Uh, they can fix that anytime by reaching out to us. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they, uh, Definitely a weird move. I'm not entirely sure why they sold it to Squarespace versus somebody like Hover or one of the other big registrar services, but that is where we're at. So, congratulations to Squarespace on getting Google's very googly domain service and uh, best of luck to them.
0: How bizarre. I mean, I, I understand um, partnering with, with companies like Elasticsearch, Elastico, or uh, Grafana and providing that type of service as, as, a, as a sort of partner-managed service in the cloud. But something as fundamental as domain registration for uh, cloud users seems really weird to me that they would sell that um, and and basically re- resell through a partner. Something so critical <laughs> to running SaaS services.
1: Well, and it's such a fundamental thing to getting workspaces up and running. Like, oh, I want to create an email account. Step one, what's your domain? Oh, I don't have one. Well, here you go, register one. And now you can set that up for workspaces. And I, I mean, I get that they can tightly integrate these things. It's all API driven, anyways. But um, it's just it's, it's sort of a weird move. Um, I, like, could you imagine Azure or AWS saying we're going to sell off our Route Fifty Three service? Like, it just makes no sense to me that you know a fundamental cloud thing like this would be not part of your business.
2: Yeah, I mean, I use it personally, and I've highly... like. 20, 30 domains registered in there that I'll probably now move elsewhere, You know, probably just directly to AWS, Route 53. Just ease of use and everything else that, you know, I've been using it for years. It auto-renews, it's nice, clean. It's, it was just easy and simple to use. And now being another third party to go log into and manage, I just not going to want to deal with it.
1: Well, I mean, I, I would hope that it would still be relatively seamless from inside the Google control panel, but they didn't tell us that in the announcement either. So, uh, you know, it, maybe they have some room to, to help sound on this again, because if you're right, if it's just like Elasticsearch, you know, you're buying a third party and it's all integrated cleanly and I don't have to go to a different console, maybe it's not the end of the world. But uh, it, it definitely, it sends the wrong message. And I think it just hurts them even more in the market when they're trying to go after enterprise sales, when they, they just prove they'll sell off a major business unit. 10 million domains at 30 bucks a piece uh, is a lot of money.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've kind of what the the margins are on something like that. It's it's all, all automated. It's been automated for decades. So what's uh, what's the problem? Like, I really don't understand what the what the motivation was. I mean, sharpening. What was the, the terminology they used? You know, greater focus on you know sharpening our products and things. How they would see domain registration as as a distraction from cloud business is is uh, I don't know kind of beyond me slightly
2: it just feels so easy to do Then now you're selling it off and having to do integrations and whatnot. Like, like you said, it's probably all automated at this point. No one really touches it most of the time, but you really need to be doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, this isn't the, the DNS service itself, which would be, you know, I think a bigger deal. Like, this is just the registration. So it's it's not like they're getting rid of that part of it, but it just still it feels fundamental mm-hmm. and, and not having it makes me respect them less. I mean, Oracle doesn't have this either, and I, I sort of look at Oracle, look like at a side eye until they bought. Uh, I think they bought somebody not too long ago. Uh, they didn't have this for a long time either. Uh, I couldn't see Oracle throwing theirs away.
2: Now I'm just double checking the back of my head that Azure actually has a domain registrar.
1: <laughs> I think they do. I mean, I know if they have DNS services, but yeah, maybe not.
2: Yeah, I know they have DNS. No, uh, you can buy a domain.
1: Yeah, use Azure as a domain registrar for a domain currently registered somewhere else. Yep, you can, yep, they do.
2: Yeah, yep. just making sure, because I, I don't use it at work,
0: but just, just wanted to double-check. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup at the juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, VogueCoin Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimised cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice.
1: Well, in the uh, If You Can't Beat Them, Join Them book, uh, Google is formally accusing Microsoft of being a monopolist by trapping people in its clouds. Google has been beat up recently by the FTC Uh, has now turned the tables and is complaining that Microsoft users' uh, software licensing restrictions keep customers locked into its cloud computing services. The letter specifically takes issue with Microsoft using its Windows server and Office products keeps clients on Azure, and that Microsoft Control is a national security risk. Google has raised similar concerns to EU regulators essentially Microsoft charging third-party cloud providers extra on its software, the cost of customers do not bear if they run on the same software as Microsoft Azure's cloud platform. So this is a this is SQL server. <laughs> uh, this has led to a uh, RFC on the how business practices for cloud computing providers uh, by the FTC. Uh, and there's been many many com- uh, conversations and submissions uh, for this type of concern. So we'll see uh, what the government does, if anything to maybe
0: regulate some of our cloud providers. it's a kind of a weird conversation because the free market' the free market the business should be set should be free to to set the prices they charge for any product for any customer uh i mean if, if you think about um, enterprise discount agreements um anything like that is, is a mechanism to provide different pricing to different customers based on usage of either one resource or combinations of resources and things so I, I, on one hand I'm, I'm like they should be able to charge whatever they like to whoever they like and the market will figure things out on the other hand. It, it is such a monopolistic position to be in but i'm not sure
2: <laughs> but at the same point microsoft's also trying to make a lot more of their products run on lighter weight think.net core microsoft sql now runs on linux so some of the licensing of just the general windows os is going away mm. obviously sql is just so expensive
0: yeah i, I think that the thing that kind of rubs me in the wrong way a little bit, is is the non-portability licenses. You know, if you've bought a license to run a SQL server on X-mini cores, then I believe that should be portable to anywhere, whether it's on-prem or any cloud. And uh, That's the, what I have a problem with more than the, the pricing arrangements.
2: Yeah, the other fun part about that article, at least as I was reading through it, was on one hand they're turning to the U.S. government saying, Microsoft controls all this, it's a national security risk. On the other hand, they're turning to the EU and say, hey, you know, look what Microsoft's doing. I'm like, feels like you're having, you know, you're like, let's see who who, who we can yell at to get them to yell at Microsoft. Let's tell on
0: everyone. Uh, the EU regulators have a pretty good track record of finding both Google and Microsoft for, for doing things like this, so we'll, <laughs> we'll kind of see. Yeah, well,
1: and they've, they've already yeah. been
0: finding them for some
1: of the stuff, and that's why they did the recent... Um EU changes for the licensing terms, right? So some of the things that Google's complaining about, they've actually fixed for local EU vendors. Uh so just an interesting, interesting way forward. Well, uh, I was disappointed we didn't come up with a title around exemplars, but <laughs> their trace exemplars are now available in managed services for Prometheus, and all I can think of is StarCraft when I hear exemplars and Prometheus, I think of aliens, so it's a good combination in general. Uh, But basically, cross-signal correlation where metrics, logs, and traces work together in concert to provide a full view of your system's health is often cited as the holy grail of observability. However, given the fundamental differences in their data models, these signals usually live in separate isolated backends. Pivoting between signal types can be laborious and with no natural pointers or links between your different observability. Trace exemplars provide cross-signal correlation between your metrics and your traces, allowing you to identify and zoom in on individual users who experience abnormal application performance. Storing the trace information with metric data lets you quickly identify the traces associated with a sudden change in metric values. And you don't have to manually cross-reference trace information and in metric data by using timestamps to identify what happened in an application where the metric data was recorded. And, of course, Google's making this available to you in the uh, managed service for Prometheus with support for the Prometheus exemplars. And now you can play with these in your implementation
0: today. Go on, Matt. You've got something cool to say. I can tell. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it just was like, you know, reading it, kind of, you know, decompressing it, you know, and understanding all of it. It's as things become more serverless, you know, and everything kind of becomes in its own like little areas, tracking everything and tracking your requests in and all the different pieces that go through your system, you know, has been a problem, you know, and that's why AWS came out with X Ray and, and APIMS and, you know, all these other, you know, things exist. So it's just another, you know, way to do a lot of the same things. Um, it's nice that it's integrated into Prometheus. And if you're running your own stacks of Prometheus and Grafana, you know it'll be nice to be able to do it all in one place versus you know having to use different tools for different aspects of your monitoring solution.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I, um, I was just going cool to pimp out cool enough. Yeah, i was just going <laughs> to TCP talks things. I, I feel like we've uh, discussed logging and observability and the. <laughs>
1: We talked to a lot of vendors, but the one that you're thinking of is a uh, Honeycomb. I believe is the one that has kind of the closest product to this, where they help you, you know, identify in a widely distributed system and a widely horizontally and vertically scaled system where those issues are happening. Um, and so there, that's a great one. That we did that interview with Peter at Reinvent uh, on TCB Talks. Fantastic. All right, let's move on to Azure. The Apparently, you enterprises want to feed all of your data and queries into OpenAI uh, ChatGPT with, with Azure and see the results. Uh, and Azure OpenAI service is now making that available to you and eliminates the need for training of fine-tuning of your own generative AI model. A user can fire off a query to Azure. Microsoft Cloud figures out what internal corporate data is needed, and the data is combined with the public data set and returned to the user. Models are managed by Microsoft and its cloud, preventing OpenAI from having direct access to the customer data queries, and output. Uh, And basically, they wanted us to know they're not available to other customers, they're not available to OpenAI, they're not used to improve OpenAI models, and they're not used to improve any Microsoft or third-party products or services, and they're not used for automatically improving Azure OpenAI models for your use in your resources. The models are all stateless unless you explicitly fine-tune models within your training data. Uh, So if you've been worried about how to use ChatGPT or OpenAI services, Azure is your go-to place to get the best of both worlds
2: I'm still always hesitant about giving other people corporate secrets. you know if they are truly that secret, really giving them away to any third party always makes me hesitant. I mean at one point though, if you're using Azure and probably storing it in blob storage or anything else like that, it's already, you know I'll, you know they already own it one way or the other.
0: We saw it last week about uh, Google telling their own employees not to use. Generative AI, especially, you know, especially bad for for coding. Um, I wonder if Microsoft would do the same thing.
2: Microsoft don't use any of chat GPT, any, anything along those lines, they disable all the code pilot plugins on all their integrated on all their integrations.
0: Yeah. I wonder if data is useful. I mean, I, I, yeah. Whenever I see a list of five knots, I'm like, well, what are the five things you are going to do? <laughs> 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 a lawyer wrote that. I know a lawyer wrote that. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I, there's definitely some interesting use cases uh, for these different things. I was hearing about a company the other day called Glean, which uses AI search and knowledge discovery for your corporate internet, you know, like I think Kendra, but on steroids. Um, and so there's definitely, I can see the advantage of having an AI LLM model in place to help you do these things. But, uh Yeah, the data privacy is the biggest issue in all this. And I kind of agree with Matt. If it's secret, don't put it anywhere that you don't trust it or don't control the endpoints. Uh, And maybe cloud isn't right for you for that particular
0: use case, but uh, it's hard to say. I've been looking recently about what would be required to run a a large language model locally. A lot of money.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Were you looking at the Databricks LM model or are you looking at a different one?
0: I was looking at... um, one of the, the Facebook llama model, actually uh, the no. 13 billion parameter model. And, uh, I, I have some pretty beefy graphics cards here at home, but they don't have enough Ram. And I think the NBA a 100 or something with 24 or 32 gig of Ram, it, it runs several thousand dollars. So although it is my birthday coming up, I don't think you expect to get one of those.
2: <laughs> Probably not getting one of those. Everyone that's listening to the podcast asks, what a fun, help fund Jonathan to get one of those cards. <laughs>
1: like uh you know if an a1000 were to fall off a truck outside your house you wouldn't cry i get
0: it i would not
1: uh you know not only is azure trying to be cutting edge in open ai and and chat uh, generative ai they're also trying to break the bank with quantum computing so this will be your place to burn all of your monies at azure someday in the future uh, and they had a couple of announcements I thought was interesting around the quantum side. First of all, they wanted to let you know that they have uh, completed the first milestone towards achieve, achieving a quantum supercomputer. They can now create and control Majorna Quasi-Particles. But I don't know what those are, but they sound cool to say. Majorna Quasi-Particles. Uh, they also have a new Azure Quantum Elements, uh, which accelerate scientific discovery by integrating the latest breakthroughs in HPC, AI, and quantum computing. Uh, and the most important one is the Copilot for Azure Quantum with scientists can accomplish complex tasks on top of the fabric of cloud supercomputing, advanced AI, and quantum all integrated with the tools they use today. And all I can think of is between ChatGPT and Azure Quantum, this is where Skynet's coming from.
0: I hadn't really considered that um, we could use these generative AI tools to actually write code for quantum computers, actually. That's, that's very useful to know because it's, it's uh, such a weird and limited language And we talked years ago about IBM and and they have simulations online that you can log into and play with new things. But uh, sort of getting from a a business idea to code to actually writing something that runs on a constant computer is is a a massive, massive step that requires mathematicians and very smart people. Uh, And actually being able to abstract that and have Copilot write that code for you is super interesting.
2: I would have got with terrifying, but interesting also works.
0: I don't know. It's not my area.
1: <laughs> All right, and then our final Azure story this week. Azure has a new network observability add-on for AKS that will scrape useful metrics from Kubernetes workloads and emit actionable networking observability data into industry-standard Prometheus format that should be visualized with Grafana. Uh, key benefits to you, the customer, is get access to node-level network metrics like packet drops, connection stats, and more. Support for all Azure CNIs, support all AKS node types, including Linux and Windows, easily deployment using native Azure tools, and a seamless integration with the Azure-managed Prometheus and Azure-managed Grafana offerings.
0: I'm all burned out on logs now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> these are networking logs. These are different. <laughs> I just assume that this was already built in at this point. You know, to me, a lot of these things are, you know, just... A little bit more day one things that I expect to be in a platform. Um, and, you know, that's in public preview means that they're still not even ready to go live with it.
0: it it's a thing I find strange is that, is that we even need these tools anymore. You know, I, I get, you know, you have data center, bare metal. Yes, you want those kind of metrics. Now we've got virtualization. Now we have virtualization metrics. Now we've got containerization. And now we need all those same metrics. It's like every every layer we build on top of something, we generate these same stuff. You know, people always care about the network
2: (laughs) because there's times that it's still a problem not speaking from recent history
1: yeah outages or outages what are you going to (laughs) do yeah all right let's move on to our cloud journey series i will say that i'm going to be at the FinOps x conference later this week Uh, i will report back next week But uh, this is an article I saw about FinOps from the field, how to build a FinOps roadmap. And this is from Google Cloud. And that's going maybe a good conversation. So, uh, you know, for you guys, you guys have both had to deal with cloud costs out of control, especially in this economy. People get mad. Uh, You know, what are some of your thoughts around adopting FinOps? And what are some of the things that you're looking at uh, defining a roadmap to FinOps? Uh, And yes, you can use the Google guide to cheat if you like. (laughs)
2: I mean, I can start, um, you know, I recently started, you know, a new day job and kind of working through first thing I did was kind of just took a look at the bill um, and kind of my way was, let's look at where we think the costs are versus what the bill costs are. So kind of just some initial chats with different people in the company and seeing, hey, where do we think the cost should be versus the reality of where the costs were? Um, and then kind of started to dive into details there. Um, of going, oh, we think that, you know, all of our, you know, costs should be, you know, in blob storage, but in reality, all of our costs is over here in compute. What's going on? Why is it not in the right locations? You know, and then kind of dive deeper into it. Um, as I go through this, I always try to look at what the business impact of what we are actually doing. So sure, we could might be able to save 20% here, but are we increasing the risk of anything, you know? Of business outages, business, you know, any negative effects to the business that we might need um, to set up. So, like those are kind of like my first couple steps as I kind of approach this.
0: I like thinking about um, not just where we're wasting money, but but why we're wasting money and how we're wasting money and what kind of what is it that got to that place where the finance is knocking your door and saying, "You said the budget was going to be this much, but we're fifty percent over." You know, by by the end of the year at this rate. So I, I think, um, one of the things that I'd focus on, it would be, uh, processes and tooling and, and figuring out, well, why do we end up with all these objects in, in object store that, that we don't need or want anymore? or why do we have all these instances stood up and that, that no one's responsible for, you know, it's been up for three years and Bob left the company 24 months ago, kind of thing. Like wh- why, why do we end up in this position and what do we need to do to stop that from happening? Yeah.
1: It's interesting, you know. You mentioned that you ask people what it should cost, and I, I find that to be cute because I always ask that question, and they always look at me like well, that's your question to answer. <laughs> so I I impress the people, answer that for you, Matt. I'm going to try your technique. I'm going to bring you to the next meeting and be like, hey, will you ask the question because they apparently answer you?
2: Oh, well, it's not. I guess where should we be spending money, but what is the most you know intensive, or where like where? What's your gut? You know, coming into a new organization, you know, my question was always where. Where do we think we should be spending it? You know, is it SQL? Is it you know load balancers? You know, wh- like where where in our environment is it? You know, where is you know the most heavy use of the cloud? You know, and and then kind of from there. And I've done many cloud cost assessments over you know at prior prior day jobs. You know, so I, I kind of like that's always where I look. Is you know a brief conversation and then kind of start to look at the bill. Um, once you know you kind of can whack a lot of the easy ones off, like, hey, we have this blob storage now or these instances that are just are running in an account that nobody knows about. Um, that's costing us several thousands of dollars per day. You know, from there I jump into what I guess normally where Jonathan then approaches, how do we get here and how do we make sure it doesn't? And you know, if we got here, why do we get here? Oh, somebody you know, in security told us we had to enable audit logs. Cool. Can we put a limit on it? Do we need to retain them forever? Or is anybody going to ever have use for fifteen terabytes a day of growth of SQL logs? You know, kind of start asking those questions.
1: I mean, you have to for compliance. So <laughs> it's kind of fun things.
2: Uh, I've definitely got that
1: answer before. Yeah, <laughs> it happens all the time. Uh, yeah, so I think you're. I think you guys are both kind of off to the right start here. Um, you know, in the Google model in their steps, they talk about first defining your stakeholders, which you know is your CCOE, which we've talked about a lot if you have one. You know, engineering team is a stakeholder, your platform team is a stakeholder, the business, and of course your accountants and finance team, who are the people yelling at you probably that you need a FinOps practice because the costs are out of control. Um, but that's really kind of step one. And then step two is really going into, you know, Defining what FinOps is going to be for your team. Is it tools and accelerators? Is it planning and forecasting? Is it driving cost optimization? Is it getting accountability and enablement? Or is it measurement and realization? And then the really nice thing about this, we just touched on a bunch of these things, is you know, what are the seven core capabilities of a FinOps practice? And that's really cost allocation, reporting, pricing efficiency, architectural efficiency, training and enablement, incentivization and accountability. Um, And the nice thing about this particular Google piece is that they actually give you a crawl, walk, run for each of those. So if I were to scroll on down here to uh, architectural efficiency and I would look at crawl, it basically says architectural efficiency hasn't been considered during migrations or in running workloads. The walking level is architectural efficiency is defined through cost awareness architectures and there are clear standards based on workload types and specific products and then running is architectural efficiency is defined through a set of cost aware architecture design patterns and engineering teams comprehensively implement optimizations of workloads throughout the organization with little or no prompting required. So they give you a really nice uh, kind of guide through this process, which I really, really actually like um, in
2: their article. Yeah, and a lot of the FinOps stuff is always, you know, it's continuous. Any you other know.
1: thoughts on creating your FinOps practice? And if you, you're looking for a lot more about this, of course, FinOps X is this week. For those of you who are in the FinOps Foundation, I'm sure we'll have lots more to talk about FinOps next week when I come back
2: from the conference. The only last comment is while you know that people like to think of this as a one time thing, this is really an ongoing thing. You're perpetually gonna be, you know, in the crawl, walk, run, you know, and always be improving state. And whether you are building it out from scratch or you know are in that process, you know, there's always gonna be improvements that you can do. And this isn't, you know, something that you do once and you're done with it. Agreed.
1: All right, gentlemen, uh, it's fantastic to be back. Glad to see you both, as always. Uh, and I'll see you guys next week
2: here in the cloud. See you later. Enjoy the conference.
1: And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag theCloudPod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions.